All right, good morning, everybody. Let's find our places. And if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. We're continuing our systematic Bible study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in the middle of chapter number 4 today. And we are emphasizing this theme that we've seen over and over again about the power of community. And there's a lot of wonderful subjects that we cover in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be in here for a while. But uh, one, I think, underlying theme that runs throughout is how God wants to communicate to us as he communicates to the Corinthian church, who, understandably, if you've read that book, is a selfish church, to be less selfish, to think less of self and to think more of the body, of the Lord, certainly, but as manifested in his body. And we'll see that as well today when we look in verses 6 through 13. The title I've given today's message is The Qualities of Servant Leadership. I think everybody here pretty much understands that God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is structured entirely different than man's kingdom. Wouldn't you say? And, and one of the most notable ways that that's evident is the difference between leaders and servants. You see, in the world system, leaders are served. But in God's system, leaders serve. That's how he set it up. Jesus said so specifically in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. It says, But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister." And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, like a Gentile leader in a human kingdom, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, we're dealing with these problems that the Corinthian church has, specifically here, these interpersonal relationships and how our selfishness gets in the way of developing the relationships in different ways as each chapter has described. And we're talking about the qualities of servant leadership today. Last week we also talked about leadership. We talked about the description of what a biblical leader is all about in the first five verses, and we saw the stewardship that the leader should have with the Word of God. But the problem in churches today and the problem with leadership in churches today is whenever you find an individual who takes the position of a leader in a church and they expect to do it in the same manner that Jesus described the Gentiles do in earthly kingdoms. They expect to be served. They expect to be exalted. They expect that others do things for them and bow to them and they demand submission. They demand honor. They demand privilege. That then becomes a problem. So the stewardship of understanding the Word of God is critically important for those who would be leaders in God's kingdom and the idea last week was so that the church can have a better understanding of what God expects and so the church can have reasonable expectations of their leadership and therefore foster better community. But today we're going to look at the leaders more and I think that the, the community application of this look at leaders today and the qualities of being a servant leader fosters community in that the leader ultimately has to lead. A leader steps out first and then the others follow we're called to be shepherds 
shepherds follow, or shepherds lead and the sheep follow, rather than like a cattle driver drives the cattle forward from behind. And so as a leader, if we live out the example of a life of a servant, in order that the community better benefits, well, that's what the Lord intends. In doing that, we're going to see two main points. And hopefully it'll help you to better understand how this role works and how all of us can then have this kind of joy in life together as a community that God intends. I'm going to read starting in verse number 6, so you go ahead and follow along, and we'll go down to verse number 13. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now you are full, now you are rich, you have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men." We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. Let's pray and get the mind of the Lord and then we'll jump into our study. Heavenly Father, I do pray that as we walk through this passage of Scripture, a lot of description that you've given us here, that you would help us to see the biblical qualities that you have for leaders and that through Paul and Apollos and the other apostles, that we would certainly see that leaders don't just come from volunteers. I pray that you would make us the kind of people that any one of us would be available and prepared at any moment of time that you would call us to step up and to be an example and to be a leader and to help facilitate more unity, more growth, more ministry for your glory's sake. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first of the two main points that we're going to look at, I'm calling the submission of the servant leader. And it's only the first couple of verses. It starts off in verse 6 where he says, In these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. So in other words, Paul is reminding the church that we can look to his life and we can look to Apollos' life as examples. Okay, so just for clarity's sake, let me just remind you that the Bible does tell us very clearly that even leaders in the church are called to, and this is the word that's used, to rule God's people. Sometimes it's considered to govern God's people. And, and that's a function of a Christian leader in a church. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, it very clearly says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and in doctrine. But what I want us to understand in the context of the, the balance of the Scripture is that to rule well, right, certainly has to be done without violating other portions of Scripture. 
So for example, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, even the elders that rule have to apply the fact that it says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, which comes just three verses after that famous verse 18 of Ephesians 5, which talks about being filled with the Spirit. So if a godly leader filled with the Spirit is going to rule well the body of the church, well, they are also going to submit themselves to others at the same time. So in this submission, there's really three things that a servant leader needs to submit to. And the first one that we're going to look at is, very clearly, biblical authority. The Bible's authority in our lives. And it goes on in verse 6 to say that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. Very interesting way to state that. Very simply, let me start just by saying the Bible certainly must be the authority of their lives. Amen? The Bible has to be the thing that guides everything that we believe. Don't just go off believing things that you think make sense if they're not defensible and provable through the written word. And therefore, if we believe them based on the truth of God's word, then we should act accordingly. Our actions should follow. So everything that we believe and everything that we do should be guided by the authority of God's word. Certainly we understand that. That means that there is no concession given to human opinion. There's no concession given to the pressures that might come on us regardless of the personal benefit that might come. So in that phrase in verse number six, I believe that there's two specific ways that you can read it. And actually, I think both ways are equally valid. The first way is this. Don't think more highly of men than you think of the word of God. That's one way that you could read that phrase. In other words, there's many people out there who would make statements like, well, the Bible is just a book. I mean, after all, it was written by men. I've known people like that. Have you ever known people like that? And in their minds, when they say such a thing, they would say, if they were honest, that, well, of course it's got some errors in it. And you know, you'll find people who actually lead churches who would believe that the Bible might have errors in it, and that might be one of the reasons why they're constantly and forever opting for new translations of the Bible, because, of course, the Bible has to evolve into a greater and a greater process. Well, that's erroneous thinking. Don't think of men more highly than you think of God's Word. This is the issue with the Roman Catholic Church, as well as many others. They see with them, the Bible is just one source of information. So are the church fathers. So is the Pope. They're all equally authoritative, they would say. But the truth of the matter is they're not actually equally authoritative because where they have records of the church fathers or the Pope speaking in direct contradiction with the Scriptures, guess who they go with? They go with the men. They're thinking of men more highly than that which is written. And that's a problem. In Psalm 138 and verse number 2, you need to be aware of this portion of Scripture where it says, For thou hast magnified thy word, Lord, above all thy name. If God's word is magnified above God's name, y'all, is it hard for us to realize it's magnified above our names too? Well, another way that we can read that phrase, and I think equally valid, is this. Don't think more highly of men than the Word of God describes them to be. So don't think more highly of men than you think of the Word, and don't think more highly of men than the Word thinks of men. See how that works? 
Because the Bible clearly tells us who we are, y'all. Sinful. Needing a Savior. Needing redemption. Needing regeneration. We're afflicted with this flesh. We're afflicted with the sin nature. We're constantly drawn by our lusts. And so I gave you a few examples to remind you in Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Isaiah 64, 6, where it says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, our very best deeds, are as filthy rags. And in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. That's what the Word of God thinks of you. Have a great day. (laughs) That's what it thinks of all of us. Don't think of men more highly than the Word of God thinks of men. That's the attitude God's servant needs to have. He needs to be faithful to God's word and understand that God's word is the final authority on everything. And it needs to be the guide for his life. You know, even when it talks about things that we don't like, even when it talks about things we don't prefer. So we should have the attitude David had in Psalm 119, starting in verse 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You see, if you're going to be God's leader as a servant, you have to submit to God's final authority in the word of God. But the next thing that he must submit to is his personal frailty. As verse 6 continues on, and it says that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. You understand that phrase, puffed up. It just means to be proud, right? So in other words, a servant leader has to have humility. Listen, when you don't give the Bible the proper place in your life, you know what you're going to do? You're going to give yourself a higher place than you ought to have. And you're going to start being proud of how awesome you are and noticing how, well, mediocre everybody else is. That's just our nature. But that's dangerous if you're a leader. It's dangerous for anybody, but certainly if you're leading God's people. Paul said it very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 12, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise. That's not a smart thing to do. God doesn't grade on the curve and neither should you. People always want to do this. People always want to say, yeah, well, but I'm not as bad as that guy. (laughs) They never really want to go on the other side and say, yeah, well, but I'm also not as good as that guy. (laughs) Because for anybody you can find on the other side that you think is a worse sinner than you, guess what? There's some dudes that walk with the Lord closer than you too. That's not the standard. Praise God for the guys that walk with the Lord and pray for those that maybe are struggling. But as for you, just stand before the Lord and His Word. That's the, that's the attitude, right? That's what He wants us to understand. Let me ask you some questions. Consider these. Isn't it good to know that God deals with you as an individual? 
He knows your specific details. He knows all of your circumstances. He understands completely your situation inside and out. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't it good to know that when you interact with the Lord, He fully understands your state? Isn't it true that when you look at other people's lives that you really don't understand all that about them? Isn't it true that there's circumstances going on in the lives of other people around you that you couldn't possibly know or understand? And isn't it a common practice that we tend to regularly judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions? You ever notice that? Somebody says, yeah, but you did it too. And you're like, yeah, yeah, but I didn't mean it. (laughs) Oh, well, that's handy. You don't give the other guy that benefit. You don't give the other guy the opportunity to tell you what he meant. And if he did, you might say, yeah, well, so what? You still did it. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all a little hypocrite, right? The sooner you learn that, the better off we'll all be. You know what? That kind of an attitude, without understanding and submitting to your own personal frailty, that's just not healthy in the kingdom of God. God's leaders just don't need to be looking down on others for any reason. But rather, like it says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Everybody, think, I think, understands that. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Nobody wants to be resisted by the Lord. And everybody needs more grace in their life. The easy formula is be humble. Be humble. And the last thing you really need to submit to that we see in this text, letter C, is God's generosity. Verse number 7. And verse number 7 begins with some rhetorical questions. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? You don't really need to answer. Who maketh thee to differ from another? Um, not genetic engineers. <laughs> oh, but even if it was, it's still not you, right? You didn't make you different than somebody else. God did. So why then is that such a problem? Think about it. Every single thing that you have that you enjoy is a gift from God. Isn't that what James 1.17 says? Every good and every perfect gift, they come down from the Father of lights from above, Right? I mean, God is the one who gives you everything that's good in your life. No question about it. Let me ask you a question. Do you have sufficient financial resources? God gave you that ability. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 8.18. God is the one who gives you the ability to make the wealth that you enjoy. Do you enjoy good health? Would you consider yourself a physically attractive person? Good job, by the way. How'd you pull that off? Are you naturally talented in some area? Are you saved? Do you have eternal life? It's a gift. It's all a gift. So then he goes on and he asks, okay, that being the case, why are you taking credit for it? Isn't that what he says? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? It's a gift. Submit yourself humbly under the authority of the Word of God 
to the generosity of God as he gifts you these things. A leader of men in God's kingdom has to be thankful. He has to be thankful and not forget where we come from because that attitude then is going to carry over to the people God wants you to serve, the people he wants you to lead so that you can serve with joy and so that you can have genuine compassion for the less fortunate. The submission of the servant leader. Well, let's look at the next point, the sacrifice of the servant leader. The sacrifice of the servant leader. And Paul begins verse number eight, and I'm not going to lie, I like this. You know, he uses a little sarcasm. You know, for those of you that don't appreciate sarcasm, you know, it is a, it is a, it is a tool the Lord uses. He's making a point, which is the beautiful design of sarcasm, by the way. It's to make a point, right? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. Verse number eight, now ye are full, Paul says, ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God ye did reign that we also might reign with you. He's trying to get their attention, see? Do you see how this is a perfect application for Laodicea? Do you remember back there in Revelation 3 and verse 17 that God quotes the Laodiceans of their own opinion and testimony of themselves. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's what they thought of themselves. More highly than they ought. And they were completely unaware of their true state. Wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They were looking at the physical. They were looking at the outward. God was looking at the spiritual. He was looking at the inward. But it's our nature to think too highly of ourselves because of all of the plenty that we enjoy. Go live in an impoverished nation and you'll see the huge difference. So he goes on and he says in verse 9 that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last. Now, we know that the word apostle means one who has been sent. In fact, we compare it frequently to modern missionaries or church planters, a, a person who has proven themselves into leadership, ordained into the ministry, and sent forth to go do the work of God in some other location. In fact, the first time it's ever mentioned is in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus gathers disciples and he sends them forth. And it's the first time he calls the disciples apostles because he sent them forth to go preach the gospel. And so in your notes, I wrote it this way. Apostles are sent forth to make disciples and set forth to the back of the line. He sent them forth as apostles, but it says here that they are set forth to be last. So apostles, without question, are leaders in God's economy. Apostles, without question, served others. They're servant leaders, right? So Jesus says in Mark 9, 35, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. The fact of the matter is, if you want to serve the Lord by serving his people, you're not going to be exalted to honor in this life. 
You just need to get that in your mind. Because God's truest servants, they're last. They're last. So what exactly does it mean to be last? Um, last in line at the church lunch? <laughs> I mean, what exactly does it mean to be last? Well, he tells us. It goes on in verse 9 and it says, as it were, appointed to death. As it were, appointed to death. So I want to look at the remaining section of verses a couple of different ways, okay? We're going to go through all of them one way, and then we'll go through it kind of another different way. And the first way I want you to see it is, uh, letter A, the apostles' example. The apostles' example. And this is important because he speaks specifically how he says, I and Apollos, we're, we're examples for you, but he includes all of the apostles. In fact, Paul is writing this in what we would say in grammar, first person plural, us, all of us, the apostles. And we are set to be last. In fact, we are appointed unto death. So the example of the lives of the apostles. Let me give you a rundown on what happened in the lives of the 12 apostles and Paul as well being the 13th. Uh, Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia by the sword. Uh, John was boiled in oil in Rome, but he survived and then ultimately was exiled to a prison on Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross because he said, it's recorded, that he, was, he said that he was unworthy to die the same way Jesus died. James the Less was thrown down a hundred-foot pinnacle in Jerusalem when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. He survived the fall and was beaten to death with a fuller's club. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Bartholomew, sometimes referred to as Nathaniel, was martyred for preaching in Armenia, ultimately flayed to death by a whip. Philip was crucified in Phrygia. Simon the Zealot was cut in half, sawn asunder, as it would say in Hebrews 13, in Persia. Uh, Andrew was crucified in Patras, Greece, after being whipped. While hanging on the cross, he continued to preach to his tormentors for two days until he expired. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India. Jude was killed with arrows for refusing to deny his faith. Matthias, the one that replaced Judas Iscariot, was stoned and beheaded. And Paul, tortured, beaten, imprisoned by Emperor Nero in Rome until ultimately decapitated. So let's ask the question again. What does last mean? What does last mean? Well, Paul gives his personal testimony before his ultimate physical end came. In that passage of Scripture you're probably familiar with in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read 10 or 11 verses for you. Start in verse 21. Paul's talking about his life. He says, I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold... I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? The servants of Christ. This is the key. I speak as a fool. I am more. And then he begins to explain why. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Paul died several deaths. 
Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forever, knoweth that I lie not. He's not exaggerating. He's not elaborating beyond measure. He's just telling the truth. Who's ready to sign up? God has set forth us, the apostles, last. Okay, let me ask you this. Forget the who wants to sign up thing. Think about it this way. If we could interview the apostle Paul today and said, hey, Paul, could we sign you up again to do it all over again? Do you think he would? I do. Paul said in Philippians 4 and verse number 12, I know both how to be abased, well, we just saw that, and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The truth of the matter is, in our lives in Western civilization in the 21st century, we know how to abound. That's not even sinful, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that. Praise the Lord for that. Be humble, be thankful, be biblical, be all of these things. But if you should be called upon to be abased, should you be called upon to suffer need, can you do that too? We should be able to do that too, right? For the record, there are other apostles besides the Big 12. You can study through the names of people who are referred to as apostles. For example, Apollos is not one of the twelve, but he's referred to with Paul in this, in this text as one of the apostles. You could find the references for also Barnabas and Silas and Timothy, a guy named Andronicus and Junia, James, Jesus' half-brother. These guys are referred to as apostles as well. And often these men were made, as it says in verse 9, a spectacle. That word spectacle is also translated in another place as theater, in other words, they were put on as a show. They were made a spectacle in the Roman Colosseum, many of them, appointed unto death as they were tortured and killed, set on fire, used as candles in the streets at night in Rome. And they were a spectacle, it says, to the world of the pagan Roman Empire as a whole, to the angels amazed at the ministry and the faith of human believers and to men as countless people looked on, many mocking, but some repenting. These men, refusing deliverance of their lives, cling to their faith, propagated the gospel all over the world. And as we see in verse number 10, they're considered fools and weak and despised for it. While the onlooking believers considered themselves wise and strong, and honorable. 
certainly contrasting the earthly physical experience with the heavenly or spiritual one, both of which are real, by the way. So the question you should ask yourself is, truly, which one is more important to you? Which one is more important to you? Verse number 11, we see something that's pretty amazing. On occasion, these men even lacked basic human necessities of food, clothing, safety, and shelter. He says that we hunger, we thirst, we're naked, we're buffeted, we have no certain dwelling place. Even though God said in Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need, not your wants, your need, according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And in 1 Timothy 6.8, he says, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. What we see is in the course of following hard after the Lord, there may come seasons of lack. The disciples come to Jesus Christ in Matthew 8 and verse 20 and they say, Master, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. You want to follow me? You want to count the cost? You want to come after me and you want to do what I would lead you to do? Well, you just need to know that there are times when I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have a home. I don't have anything certain and guaranteed and promised and assured and backed up with savings accounts and insurance programs and all these things. Are those things evil? No, I'm just saying you can know how to abound, but if called upon, there could be seasons where even some of the basic necessities of life aren't always provided. Look down in verses 12 and 13, and you'll find that they didn't always have sufficient financial support. They had to work with their own hands. All along the way, being reviled, they respond with blessing. While being persecuted, they endure it. While being defamed, slandered, lied about, they pray. They prayed. Peter understood it, 1 Peter 3, 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Why? Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. That's God's leader, amen. Personified in the first century in the lives of the apostles. So what does that mean to us? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever truly considered risking all that to get the gospel to somebody else? Can I tell you with 100% certainty that if you're saved and you make it into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, if you make it into heaven, you'll meet people who have done it. You'll meet a lot of them. And you'll meet people who have done it in today's time. A lot of them in other countries around the world where the persecution is very heavy. But there's people that are counting that cost and doing that kind of a life living their life as fools, last today. The Apostles' example. Well, let's talk for a second about the Apostles' doctrine. The Apostles' doctrine. What did the Apostles teach us about living the Christian life? Well, Paul, for example, in Philippians 1, 29 and 30, said this, For unto you it is given 
in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. We just read about the conflict of Paul, did we not? And he says it's given unto you, Christian, not just the opportunity to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I'd prefer these not be in the Bible. It's a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Thank the Lord for that. But verse 12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. You want to rule and reign with Christ? Yes, amen, of course. Well, there's a prerequisite. Peter describes it this way, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. Notice, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He goes down in chapter number 4 and verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened unto you. Don't we do that? Some things begin to fall apart. People begin to attack you. Circumstances go south. You've counted the cost to try and do things for the Lord. And all of a sudden, everything has fallen apart in your life. And we're like, I can't believe it. Man, I can't believe I'm trying to do what's right and everything's going wrong. I think I'm done. I'm out. And that's the wrong answer that too many people come to. And God wrote this through Peter to remind us, hey, don't think it's strange. Be ready for it when it comes. People make fun of me because I talk all the time about the power of negative thinking. I think it's helpful. (laughs) The power of negative thinking, man. I mean, if you plan for the worst and it happens, at least you're ready for it. And if it doesn't happen, praise the Lord. (laughs) Right? I mean, you're not going to sell a lot of books that way, but I mean, hey, it's a good idea. Back to our text, 1 Peter 4, verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he's glorified. So this is the apostles' doctrine of suffering. And they lived it themselves. They lived it themselves. Another example Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, which really can apply to all of us, right? Where he says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. That is a quality of a servant leader that is the quality of an individual who will say i don't like it but i accept it let it come on me if it assists you i'm considered a leader in the body of christ 
That means that I'm going to get more stuff poured on me so it doesn't have to be poured on you. And I accept it willingly. Why? Do I love it? Of course not. I do it because it will help you and it will help us. And together we become the manifestation of the life of Christ, the habitation of the Spirit of God, the house of God. That's who we are. That's how he needs to work in us. So back to our qualities. Leaders are leaders because they've proven themselves over time. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. <laughs> And if you're a little overwhelmed because these verse references seem to never end and they seem to keep hitting you in the face, it's because the Lord is trying to communicate to us that that exists out there, y'all. And when it does, don't let it catch you by surprise. Realize it's just an opportunity for you to stand in Christ's stead, for you to take a small portion of what he had to take for the benefit of many others. That is the ministry. That is what we are called to. So this teaching, the doctrine of the apostles, well, what they're teaching us is, based on their experience in life in the first century, nothing's changed. Everything's exactly the same today too, right? So how the modern ministers that get rich and live in ease they know how to abound, but they have no clue what it means to be abased. How those guys are getting away with it, selling themselves off to truly be the servants of the people, well, that's just not a biblical example, is it? It's just not a biblical example. So, really, the issue is this, and this is the principle I want you to get, so I put it at the end of your notes. There is no crown without a cross. There's no crown without a cross. We don't like hearing it. I don't, but we accept it. Why? Because we don't live for this world's approval. Listen, our life is eternal, and what awaits us is far greater than anything we could gain here anyway, amen? Remember where Paul said that I reckon that the sufferings of this present world aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that'll be revealed in us. I believe that if we had a glimpse of the glory and how the glory is doled out in proportion to the amount of suffering we took for Christ's sake, we might actually rejoice. We might actually be happy. We might actually willingly sign up. Remember where Paul said, in deaths oft? You can go back into the book of Acts and he was stoned and left for dead, and then he rose up and went on. Did he actually die? I think he did. You might not think so. It's okay. The point is this. After that event in the history of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, his manner of ministry changed. He wasn't careful anymore. He didn't care anymore about being lowered out of the window in a basket to save his neck. He went after that thing, I mean, with a vengeance. And he preached to everybody, and he was warned left and right, don't go there, they're going to get you. Don't go there, they're going to get you. And he's like, I'm going. Why is that? Well, I think it's because, like it says in 2 Corinthians, I knew a man in Christ who was taken up into the third heaven. Paul speaks in the third person of himself. 
I believe Paul died. I believe Paul went into the third heaven. I believe God told Paul, I'm not done with you. You have to go back down there. And I think that Paul said, really? (laughs) And Paul saw how awesome it was. And he's like, I want to be there for me to live as Christ, but to die is gain, he said. I want to get back there. I know. I'm going to live in such a way that they kill me, man. And then I get to go back there. But we haven't seen that with these eyes yet. We haven't seen it yet. If we did, we could, like the apostles of that century, turn this world upside down. Turn this world upside down. And you know what? Here's the funny thing. You can see it, right? You can see it. I'd get it if you were really there. That'd be awesome. But he gives us the story, and it's pretty clear. Let me ask you a question. We're about to be done. What kind of a life are you looking for? What do you want for yourself in your life? By the way, this is just good planning for you and your family. What kind of a life do you want for yourself? Would you like to be the kind of a person that God can use to lead his people? Do you need to be respected and honored and treated well all of the time? Because if that's true, then, well, leadership's not for you. Leadership's not for you. But if you can truly love the Lord more than you love your comfort. By the way, we love our, I love my comfort. Don't get me wrong. But if we can love the Lord more, well, then just maybe... We can be the kind of person that God can use to lead others. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, starting in verse 34, it says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, that explains a lot. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me, well, he's not worthy of me. And he that findeth his life, man, I just need to find myself. He shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Maybe it's not you, but maybe it's somebody you know that is just truly like a lost soul wandering around, desperately needing to find who they are and why they're here and what life is about, and they're frustrated, and they're not bad people, but they just don't really know what they're doing, and they're trying desperately to get it all, and they're going exactly against the prescription that God laid out. God said, just lay it down. It's the paradox of the Christian life. But I know that's not attractive. I know that's not the kind of message that makes people want to just flood down front and say, man, sign me up. So the Lord reminds us, hey, look, don't worry too much about it because regardless of whatever it is you have to go through, you have this promise. You never go through it alone. You're cast down maybe, but you're never forsaken. Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Would you notice in verse 37, it doesn't say, nay, narrowly avoiding all these things, we are more than conquerors. No, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And can I tell y'all that that fellowship, the Bible calls it the fellowship of his sufferings. It's oddly sweet. It's special. Because when you experience a portion of life at a small level in comparison to Christ, that is like his life, well, now you've got something in common with him that you didn't used to have. Now you've got a point of contact and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And, and you know it. If you have gone through suffering and trust, trusted Christ through it, you know that although you maybe wouldn't want to go through it again, the fellowship you experienced with the Lord was sweet. And you would have never experienced it any other way except having to suffer a little bit. A lot of times, some of God's choicest servants, missionaries in my opinion, live their whole lives in obscurity, unknown. Nobody ever knows who they are. Well, in the kingdom we'll know, but we don't know who they are. But sometimes we know who they are, and sometimes there's some guys whose names make it into print, and we read about them, and that's a great encouragement to us. One of such is a guy named Jim Elliott. He's a famous missionary. He was killed taking the gospel to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And he's quoted with this saying, he's no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He's no fool to give what he cannot keep anyway, all of the pleasures of this life, in order to gain what he can't lose, all the spiritual reward. You're no fool if you make that choice. So let's take the exhortation of Hebrews 13, 13 as we enter into our time of prayer, where it says, let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Let's pray together.